Good morning. We're reading this morning from 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, and with with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, give us understanding of your word this morning. All right, so we are in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, as we just read, um, and so we're going to begin in verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so this verse starts with this, therefore. Um, We are remembering what Peter has written um, in the first first verses of this book. If you remember from last time I preached, we went through verses 1 to 12, and Peter labored to explain the preciousness of faith in Jesus. And what he explained is that Jesus' divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so... um, And for this very reason, because God gives to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we therefore make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and our godliness with brotherly affection, and our brotherly affection with love. And so we talked about how much power God's power is, God has all power, right? He doesn't lack power to do anything that he wills. And God promises to use all of this power for the purpose of giving his people everything they need for life and godliness. And so that takes away any lack, any doubt, any, any 
thing in us that would say, but I can't. We have to, in faith, say, but God has. Where we lack the power or the desire or whatever it is we lack for righteousness and for living for the kingdom, God has says, my power is at work in you to bring that to completion. And so if all power, if God's power is at work in us, who are we to say otherwise? That is, that is the, the confidence, that's the bedrock of our faith, is it is God's work in us, not our own strength. And so, we can with confidence make every effort to learn virtue and to learn knowledge of him and to learn not to be ruled by our passions but instead to have self-control. We can with confidence have a steadfastness in our faith that we're not tossed about by every new teaching and every new argument that comes across our path. We can with confidence learn to worship with others and be a part of the body of Christ, what, what Peter calls godliness. We can learn to have affection, genuine affection for other believers. And finally, we can learn to love, to lay down our lives for the good of our neighbors like Jesus did. And so this is what Peter is, is arguing for and pushing for in the first 12 verses, um, that faith produces action in our life that propels us to Christ-likeness. This, but this doesn't happen by accident. He says, um, make every effort to grow in these things. Um, and in this way, you will live a fruitful life, bring glory to the Father, and you will be richly welcomed into the eternal kingdom of our God. And so this is Peter's last wish for his people to know and know deeply as he has been made, he has had it made known to him that he is going to be putting off the body soon. Um, that's a way of saying he is going to die for his faith and soon. Peter, by the Holy Spirit, has, has had this revealed to him. And with his last opportunity to teach, he wants his people to know God is at work in you by his great power. Therefore, make every effort to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in these things. And so it is, it is Peter's hope and expectation that they would have faith in God that would propel them forward um, into, into action. Two, this is not a myth, but it is a reality. And so why is Peter so insistent on this point? Why is this what's so important to him? Well, it's because he's convinced of the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus is coming back in power. And so verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter is so determined to have his people understand and live out these qualities in their lives because he is convinced that Jesus actually is the risen king. He actually is seated in power at the right hand of God the Father, and he actually is going to come back. 
You see, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry from very early on. He saw all the healings. He saw the casting out of the demons. He saw the, mer- the feeding of the thousands, the calming of the storms. He saw Jesus' humility as he loved and served the marginalized and the broken. He saw him turn the other cheek to insult and humiliation. But Peter now highlights something very specific of all the things he saw Jesus do. He highlights when in Matthew 17, um, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and and Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise. And have no fear. So to understand what's going on here, I think we have to go back to Exodus. And we have to remember that a key part of the identity of God's people, Exodus 33, 16, says, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So what made the Israelites distinct? What made God's people distinct? It is that the I am, the self-existent creator of heaven and earth in all his glory, was with them. And as Exodus unfolds, we see that the way in which God dwelt with his people was through the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was the place which they, as sinful and rebellious people, could go and find atonement for their sin and seek the presence and the blessing of the almighty God. And so God was in their midst. So when Peter says, let me make tents for you and Elijah and Moses, Peter is thinking, at last, Elijah is here, Moses is here, Christ the Messiah is here, the one who Moses spoke of in the law and the one the, the, one the prophets promised, he is here. Finally, the kingdom is here. Let us make this an abiding reality Dwell in our midst, start your kingdom in which the increase of your government and of peace, there will be no end. And then just so the eschatological tone would reach like a full crescendo, a voice was born to him from the majestic glory. Um, God spoke in this moment, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so this is, a, this is a quote from Psalm 2. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is where God laughs. God laughs at the people and the kings who set themselves up against him and his anointed one. And God says in a prophetic triumph, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he goes on to say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so if you've ever wondered why the disciples were so excited that Jesus was there and maybe why they were so surprised and it seems to us they acted so foolishly and out of line with Jesus' mission, you have to realize that there were all of these charged promises in the Old Testament and, and direct quotations, even for Peter, James, and John, a voice from heaven declaring, you are my son. That was directly out of Psalm 2 and talking about the Messiah King who would come and who would destroy all the evil nations and the kings that laugh at God and the peoples who mock his name. And now Peter, James, and John are hearing, you are my son, and seeing him in his majestic, in his glory, shining like the sun. What do you think's going on in their hearts right now? They are thinking, finally, the kingdom of God is here. They're just running through the Torah. They're running through the Old Testament prophecies, and they're going, it's here, it's time, it's now. It will, our, our, our people are going to be liberated. Pain and death and suffering, it, they're no more. It's, the time for the kingdom is here. Do you guys see how that would just, for, for a Jew at that time to hear you are my son, Psalm 2 quoted in this way, that would stir up a lot in their hearts all at once. But then Jesus did not remain in his glorified state. He goes down the mountain and he continues on in his mission of reconciliation. He continued on in humiliation to the cross. The kingdom was beginning. The kingdom of Jesus was, was here. It, it had arrived. But not yet in the power of Jesus' glorified state. His kingdom was to bring peace through sacrificing his very life for sinners and rebels. This was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. It was prophesied that he would be pierced for our transgressions. It was prophesied that he would purify himself a people who would worship him and worship him with pure incense. Um, it, it was in short prophesied that he would make for himself a purified people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus continues his mission of humiliation and of dying and the disciples watch him go through this. And so 2 Peter was written to a church that was being persuasively inundated with false teaching. It was a false teaching that was undermining the reality of Jesus' authority in their lives and the imminent reality of his powerful return as the glorified king and judge. Peter's intention for writing the letter is that their faith may be strengthened so that they might live lives of holiness as they wait for that day. Peter uses this experience as an eyewitness of the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus in his glory. He uses it um, to show that Jesus is going to come in power and glory as the king of all. He brings up the Mount of Transfiguration because on that mountain he saw Jesus in his radiance and glory, and he fell flat on his face and trembled. He saw Jesus not as meek and mild, but, as, but in the terrifying power of his godness. He has already seen Jesus in power and glory, and out of his eyewitness account, he argues that it's not just wishful thinking that Jesus is going to come back and set up the kingdom. 
No, this is the logical conclusion of what Peter himself had already seen. And so the powerful Jesus that he had seen was not dead. Peter had seen Jesus die, and he had seen Jesus risen from the dead. He had ate with him and talked with him and walked with him after Jesus' resurrection. Peter had been present as he ascended into heaven, and Peter had heard Jesus' promise that as I go, I will return. And so Peter has, has put this all together, and from the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing Jesus in his power and his glory, now he is saying, as his church is being inundated by false teaching that is twisting morality and twisting the necessity to fear God and live under his authority, Peter brings this up and says, I saw Jesus in his glory. And even though these teachers are saying that Jesus' return isn't imminent or that he doesn't care about these things and they're twisting the scriptures, Peter is able to say, Jesus is real and he is coming back in power. That powerful king I saw, he is resurrected and he is coming back soon. Peter was drawing his people out of the self-centered perspective that would place their happiness, sensual pleasure, and self-glorification, as chapter 2 is going to talk about. That's what the false teachers are pushing the people to believe in. Um, he's drawing them out of that false teaching, and instead he's inviting them to live in such a way that the kingdom of Jesus is real, and it's coming. You see, if... If you want to be impervious to false teaching, believe that Jesus is real and he's coming soon. Oh, that will guard your heart from so much. To have a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To understand the reality of Jesus is the, the beginning place for truth. Jesus is real and coming. It is not a myth. And so just so we're clear, Peter was not a preacher of words. He had, uh, like Jesus, he lived out what he taught. Peter was willing to be killed for this belief that Jesus was alive and that he was coming back soon. He was willing to live, literally give up his life because he believed these things. He believed in the kingdom and that it was here and that it was coming and so I believe that for us here this morning, this is also a desperate need of our hearts to once again give up striving for life in this breaking down, fickle, God-belittling world and instead see that we've been taken out of the rat race. We've been taken out of trying to find life in these breaking down things. And instead, we would give our lives over to the reality that our work is for and our fulfillment is in the kingdom of Jesus. This isn't a fickle or a vain work. This is a kingdom that is coming and will endure, for it is a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And so a number of years ago, there was a TV on commercial, it was a FedEx commercial actually, um, that I think illustrates this pretty well. So in the commercial, there's this guy named Jerry in his office, and he is looking stressed. He's pulling his hair out at his desk. Um, one of his coworkers walks in and says, how's it going, Jerry? And Jerry proceeds to share his woes with international shipping. He explains that the products he's sending just aren't reaching the recipients in time. 
Well, he's talking about this. The, the, the video shows he's doing meditation and he's raking sand and there's like gentle music playing with a waterfall and he's trying to cope with the stress in his life through all these different coping mechanisms. Uh, his coworker asks, are these strategies working for you? Um, he responds by saying, not really. And she says to him, have you, considered by, about, have you considered switching to FedEx? They shipped over 140 different companies and the delivery time is guaranteed. Now, just so we're clear, I have no stocks or any other interest in FedEx. <laughs> I only say this for the purpose of saying, I find this commercial so interesting because it is saying that when you need to get supplies from one place to another and it's not going well, you can try, you can try and cope through meditation or through, through raking sand or listening to gentle, soft, soothing music. You can try these things, but it's, it's not doing anything to solve the problem. And the reality of it is, is once, once you get through the waterfall, the stress is right there. What you actually need is a shipping company that will follow through on their commitment and will ship your goods in a timely manner. That's what Jerry needs, right? You don't just need a psychological, emotional, or spiritual crutch. You need real-life results. Peter's argument is a little bit like this. He is claiming that what he is teaching is not just a faith that gives you comfort and soothes you in the face of a chaotic universe where suffering runs rampant and death reigns supreme. He is claiming that our precious faith rooted in the promises of God is a reality. You need a real solution to sin, suffering, and death. And the solution is God's anointed ruler who has triumphed over sin and death. And he is coming back in power. This is the real life results that you and I and this world need. This is the FedEx of reality. We, we need this. Um, it, will, it will actually solve what's most deeply wrong in your heart and in the world and in all of broken creation. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The prophecies of the Old Testament have been seen in their fulfillment by Peter, and this makes what was sure, the prophecies were sure, God doesn't lie, right? But now they're even more sure, for God has again proven that he is faithful to bring about what he has promised to do. And so in life, when you know someone, every time they tell you the truth about something, every time you, you see them tell the truth, that gives you more confidence in the veracity of their other speech and promises. Like when I work with somebody who every time they say they'll do something, they go and get it done and they do the job well, while the next time when they say, oh yeah, I'll do that, I'm like, done. That task is done. I don't have to worry about that anymore, right? We, we intuitively know this when we're dealing with other humans. How much more so with God? He has made 
vast and unthinkable promises. And now as history goes on, it's just like done, 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 faithful, true, did it again, did it again. And at a certain point, our, our hearts just start to get caught up in that and go like, is, is all the rest of this going to come true as well? I don't know if you guys have had that discovery in your life, but I, I haven't always found it, found it easy to believe in the middle of real-life situations that actually everything sad is going to come untrue. Actually, everyone who I love is, who is suffering, God is ultimately going to use that for good. Um, all these things that come across and your heart has trouble believing in the promises of God, how powerful is it when you can look back and you can see God promise and deliver, and promise, and deliver, and promise, and deliver, and eventually you, you see that, that it's more sure than you, you once believed it was. Um, that's, that's a little bit, that, that is what is going on here. Peter is saying, I have witnessed Jesus in his glory, and I am telling you that God is faithful. The prophecies are true. What we as a people hoped for, I have seen the consummation, beginning. I, 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 have, I have seen the Messiah in his glory, and he is coming back. That, that's what Peter is arguing here, that the prophecies are more fully confirmed. He has seen, he's seen it. Um, the prophetic word did not originate in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, David, Solomon, or Moses. No, the prophetic word originates in God speaking. And so just as God creatively spoke the world into existence at the beginning, he has also prophetically spoken about who he is and what will happen and what should happen in his world. And his word cannot be shaken. So when God speaks, it is so. As far as I understand it, the logic goes like this. Peter saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration he was an eyewitness of this fulfillment of God's prophetic word. God has spoken much more about who Jesus is and what he will do, that he is coming back in power. Um, and this is absolutely trustworthy. And so when Peter is teaching his churches about the coming of Jesus, he points them to the scriptures and says, God has promised it will be so. Live not according to circumstances, Live not according to what you see as dark and broken in the world around you. Live according to God's revelation in his word. For I have seen it in its fulfillment. In short, circumstances change, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we are to fix our eyes on Christ. We are to fix our eyes on the word, for it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. It will provide for us light in darkness as we traverse this world awaiting the return of the king. Now, it is dark. You do wrestle with sin and confusion and many things that might send your heart and your mind into a tailspin, but the word of God illuminates your path. It gives you a focused, a fixed focal point that you might, you might traverse the dangers of this life and find um, your, your, your way safely through. And so the word of God illuminates your path until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
And so some have taken this morning star rising in your hearts um, to speak of an inner enlightenment in the believer. Now, I think what's difficult about this interpretation is, is that it's, well, first of all, put right alongside the day dawning. So when the day dawns, the morning star is also rising in your hearts. So I think um, the, the wording of it leads you to believe that these two things are happening alongside each other. Um, but the context of the passage itself as well just necessitates not seeing it as a, a little spirit, or not a little. It, do, it necessitates a, that we wouldn't just simply see that as a spiritual enlightenment that has happened already because that would defeat Peter's argument. We need the word of God. We need the word of Christ until the day dawns. He is saying you need this to walk through the darkness. And so for that, that interpretation that would say the morning star rises in your hearts is like conversion, for example, then Peter's argument would be you're converted and therefore you don't need the prophecies anymore. But Peter is arguing to believers that they need the prophecies to help them navigate this dark world until the day dawns and the morning star rises in their hearts. Does that make sense? I hope that made sense to you. Um, and so that, that means that we as Christians, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have had, First uh, Peter, it says we've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's past tense. We have already been given new birth. We have already had an enlightenment, if you will, in our hearts that we can see the glory of Jesus and God. And as the Holy Spirit works in us, he's teaching us to, to be obedient to Jesus and to be sprinkled by his blood. So, so Peter has already shown that there is such a thing as new birth into a living hope that is past tense. But Peter is also arguing here that there is a day coming when the morning star rises in your hearts that there is a day coming um, when uh, some of the darkness and confusion and the wrestling of, of really fully believing in the reality of God and the, his presence with us, that that will be no more. And so this is the day when darkness is thrown down forever. This is Peter's whole point, that we need the light of the scriptures until the day of the Lord. Chapters 2 and 3 make it clear that Peter is not speak, simply speaking of a personal enlightenment, but rather the return of the king. On that day, our hearts will no longer need to rely on the prophecies of Scripture to illuminate our path. For the day will have dawned, and our hearts will see Jesus in all his glory face to face. We will dwell with Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. We will no longer need the prophecies for prophecy will have been fulfilled. The, the necessity of prophecy will be over. We will be with Jesus. And so, what does this mean for us? A little while ago, I was listening to a sermon by Timothy Keller, and he used an illustration. Um, it was by a guy um, named Jonathan Edwards, and he was a pastor in New England in the 1700s. But he tells of a man who received a notification that he had a wealthy uncle in New York who had passed away, and he was the next closest living relative. And ergo, he was the inheritor of a sum of $5 million. Now, in the 1700s, 
that is a sum to be uh, <laughs> celebrated, right? Without delay, he made the necessary arrangements, hitched his horses and his wagon, and began his trip to the city. On the way, his wagon hit a rut and tore his wheel off the axle. Now he was mad and began to resent his uncle and this blasted trip to the city. When he was charged $60 to repair his wagon, he was incensed. And when, he started, when it started to rain and the traffic became slow and congested, he actually began to curse fellow travelers. Though promised a fortune, he was short-tempered and resentful as he made his way to claim what had been given to him. Now, I wonder if we can relate to this man. Although we've been promised an incredible inheritance and the coming of our Savior is sure, we begin to have tunnel vision for our lives and we start to believe that our immediate circumstances and feelings are all that matter. And so rather than living into the reality that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and rather than living lives where we wait um, purely and faithfully for the coming of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, we instead begin to live self-centered, fretful, greedy lives, beginning to resent God for making our short existence as his ambassadors in this broken world difficult and uncomfortable. We begin to turn away from following our Lord and walking with joy um, toward our eternal inheritance, and rather we are consumed with the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And so today, I come to you declaring from the word of God that this is not a myth, that Jesus is coming back in power, that you would do well to live with that reality constantly in your mind. Pay close attention to the word of God, which will be to you a lamp shining brightly in the middle of the darkness. The morning is coming when light will permeate the landscape. Truth will be plain for all to see, and suffering will be alleviated. May the word of God guide us and keep us for that day. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Sing that again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest spring, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground. Darkness fills my Savior's face. I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and storm, 